Welcome, listeners, to the inaugural broadcast of Pod Civility. My name is Sarthik Sharma, and with my co-host, Robert Daniel, we're going to give you a look at what's happening in the world each week or each month, depending on how this goes. We're going to try and strike a tone that is civil. Um, There's a lot of people yelling in the podcast world, and we're trying to cut through that noise. The goal for the hot take here is to bring a little civil discourse back to civilization. So if you couldn't tell already within the first 10 seconds, this podcast basically aspires to simply change civilization. So I think we're probably good to go. Humility is key. It's going to be one of the things we bring to the table each week. And I think what is going to be important here is to understand that both of us have uh, legal backgrounds, but... It isn't really about what our education levels are, what we're doing now in life. It's it's about what we're interested in and what we're seeing happening around us every day uh, and how we can kind of convey that to you, the listener, in a civil way without the name calling, but also in a way that gets you through your morning commute with a little bit more information maybe than you had going in. Exactly. So uh, with that being said, we'd like to welcome you to Pod Civility. So, Robert, what's first on the agenda? Well, I mean, honestly, this week has been a a crazy week, and we're not even all the way through it. Um, I think in terms of current events, what's happening that really brings my attention is yesterday it came out, and this is interesting, this leaked out, and these things don't normally leak out, that Carter Page, um, who was a foreign policy advisor for Donald Trump, um, had been the, had been wiretapped through the FISA court. Normally, the FISA court wiretaps foreign Wait, individuals. Wait, what, what is? Can you kind of explain what the FISA court is? Yeah, so the FISA court was set up um, to allow the foreign government to spy on foreign individuals um, in a way that didn't alert them to the fact that a court was spying on them. Um, it's pretty secretive. The rulings are top secret. The only court order that has been... Except when it gets leaked. <laughs> exactly. And the only court order that's ever been leaked was leaked by Edward Snowden. And he kind of alerted people to the fact that the FISA court um, did what it did and existed kind of uh, anonymously. The, the justices on the FISA court are picked by um, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And they are. it's, it's a nonpartisan court. They're normally federal judges. Um, and traditionally, they do grant warrant applications. Um, so how significant is it that Carter Page, someone that has been very clearly linked very publicly to the Trump administration, that there was a, a warrant for him? Well, th- this is what's interesting. So the FISA court normally applies to foreign citizens, and Carter Page is an American citizen. And so what happened with Carter Page is that the the FBI applied for a FISA court um order of granting them access to wiretap him as an American individual because they demonstrated probable cause that he was acting on behalf, knowingly acting on behalf of a foreign power. Um, And that in and of itself can kind of get lost on us in the noise that they met that burden to get this warrant because they demonstrated evidence that he was acting on behalf of a foreign power. So does this, I guess, I think one of the questions maybe that listeners might have with this in the general sense is, does this vindicate and validate Donald Trump's tweets about him being wiretapped. You know, and that's interesting because I follow a Twitter account called Rogue um, POTUS, and it it is supposedly nobody knows for sure, but it's supposedly um, presidential staffers that have gone rogue and are tweeting anonymously on Twitter. And they said they tweeted last night. They said 
Uh, Don- it sounds so cloak and dagger. I know, it, it does sound cloak and dagger. Um, they said last night that Donald Trump viewed this as a positive thing, and they could be making this up, so I want to be completely clear. Um, but they said they viewed it as a positive thing because Donald Trump thought that this vindicated his claim that Obama had wiretapped him. And I guess with that, the issue then becomes, you know, where does, where does it stop? Like, does everything, does any investigation about anyone linked to Donald Trump then just fall under the umbrella of wiretapping Donald Trump, of President Obama wiretra- uh, wiretapping Donald well, Trump? And that's one of the interesting things if you look at, if you, if you kind of step back and just look at the messaging ability of Donald Trump to tweet about um, Obama wiretapping him and to completely flip the narrative. And so now even when you get a story like the fact that Carter Page was wiretapped because um, the Justice Department believed that he was knowingly operating on behalf of a foreign power, it suddenly vindicates this narrative that Donald Trump had already planted. And maybe part of that blame also goes on President Obama or some of uh, the people that were in his administration for not really coming out to combat this. Right? We see stories of President Obama and French Polynesia surfing, yeah. and that's, that's his prerogative he gets to do that he ran the country for eight years he's he's a tired soul anyone that sees a picture of him these days uh can can definitely tell that (laughs) that's that's for sure Uh, but maybe part of this falls on him if donald trump is the only person at that level of power with a podium uh with the message to put out there he kind of gets to say whatever he wants yeah and i think that that captures this tension between uh, you know ex-presidents um criticizing their um, the the president that follows them. Normally, there's there's kind of this this veil of silence. You see George W. Bush going off to Texas to paint pictures and never really criticizing President Obama. And I and I think that there's generally an unwritten rule that they should do that. And obviously, we've entered into this weird twilight zone of American history where unwritten rules seem to be thrown out the window. It definitely, it definitely seems like that rule is being violated. I mean, we. We can kind of see both sides of that right now. You, it was just in the news that uh, President Clinton visited H.W. Uh, yeah. and gave him a, a pair of socks as, as a present. And that is, I think, what the American people are normally used to with mm-hmm. presidencies, where it can get really bitter. But then when it's over, it's over and you're back to civil discourse. And it doesn't seem like it's really the case here. You know, I I get this impression and this is this is complete guesswork right now. So forgive me, listeners. But um, I get the impression that Obama is abiding by the rule. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Um, Because I'm unlike Clinton and George H.W., where there might have been some collegiality between the two of them. It appears as if, you know, obviously Obama um, dealt with Donald Trump even when he was president, having Donald Trump question um, his citizenship and ultimately. um, But but to Donald Trump's credit, though, in this past election cycle, there is bitterness on both sides. President President Obama was very openly in support of Hillary Clinton, maybe more so than we've seen past presidents supporting uh, the candidate from their party. Uh, you know, the, so the name calling kind of flew both ways. Uh, so is it really out of the realm for, for President Trump to now suggest that maybe there's wiretapping? Well, you know, it's it, it's interesting because I was talking to a colleague and he said, isn't it basically for sure that Donald Trump's claim that he was wiretapped is correct? 
And what he was alluding to was um, incidental collection. The American government will listen in on the conversations of, for instance, the Russian ambassador in Washington. And when that ambassador talks to um, American leaders, well, they're collected in with the Russian ambassador's phone calls. Um, and so, you know, I think that uh, Donald Trump, he, he he always has just enough truth in these claims to to – to really, it's hard to refute them completely. And this sounds like one of those detective movies or like a Law and Order episode where you have all these pictures of different people and string kind of tying everyone yeah. together, and it all kind of leads up either to Russia or, or to Donald Trump. And and I think that's a really good way to think about it because I think that that if you if you think about it as that crazy movie scene where you walk in the person's room and there are six hundred pictures and newspapers all put on the wall and they're connecting the dots. Um, well, generally in that movie, what would happen next would be a smoking gun moment. Is that where Carter Page fits in? And Carter, I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think Carter Page, I think this information was leaked about Carter Page to send a message to the administration. You know, I think the intelligence community leaked this with, with a lot of intention. You know, I don't know who leaked it, but it's very rare that this type of leak occurs. Um, FISA, FISA court orders that are ongoing with regards to an active criminal investigation are rarely leaked. Um, I can't think of another one off the top of my head besides the Edward Stone disclosure. But small, small disclosure. Small, yeah, small, small disclosure from uh, Ed, you know. Um, but I don't, I don't know if we're going to get a smoking gun in this situation. Is there a point to keep looking? You know, and that becomes the issue. It's like, I think obviously the people who were acting and doing these things to the American electoral system, obviously Russia with the hacking, you know, they're going to do it in such a way that it's hard to have a smoking gun moment. You know, they're going to hide the evidence. It's going to be difficult. And, and it's hard to even know, you know, how much of an effect, if it had an effect um, on the American election. But it's certainly interesting to watch all of these, um, all of these little stories kind of add up. Um, you have Carter Page being monitored. You have uh, Michael Flynn um, having to resign because he had lied about context. You have uh, Jared Kushner meeting with the CEO of Russian banks that are um, currently sanctioned by the American government. And it, it very much seems like a lot of the people connected to Donald Trump have in some tangential way had some contacts with Russian officials, Russian businessmen, some something that leads finally maybe to Putin. But maybe the overall thing here to look at is what's happening with all the investigations surrounding Russia and the Trump administration. It feels like that's taking away from both Congress's ability to govern in the legislative sphere and also uh, Trump's ability in the executive sphere because you have the talk of a government shutdown in Congress. Mm-hmm. Part of that, or there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of the reason is because you have such hyperpartisanship going on on both sides, and a good bit of that is the whole investigation in Russia. A lot of Democrats don't think that the Trump White House is a legitimate White House. Exactly, and I think that that becomes a key issue because if you're if you're pursuing an investigation that ultimately won't have a smoking gun, it will have a lot of circumstantial evidence adding up. That that type of investigation can go on for a long time. 
And without a smoking gun, it's hard to know where things will end. And there will always be that shadow cast over the legitimacy of the Trump presidency. And that, and while I am uh, certainly have my own questions personally with regards to this whole uh, this whole set of circumstances, the fact that the American government has that, or the Trump presidency has that um, shadow over its own legitimacy, absolutely affects its ability ability to conduct foreign policy. Well, speaking of foreign policy, I think that's been kind of a hot button issue over the last couple of weeks. Um, And there's been a lot of talk about the actions that the United States has taken in Syria. With that being said, should we have gone into Syria? Should we have or should we have at least attacked Syria? Well, you know, this question doesn't have an answer. It's difficult to know what to do, and it's difficult to fashion a policy, a broad-based policy as to how to approach the problem. And part of that is connected to the discussion we just had with regards to the legitimacy of the Trump government and its ability to work with Russia to try and find a solution um, that will lead to either the um, election of a new Syrian leader and Assad stepping down um, or Russia backing off its support of Assad. Um, But as it stands right now, America cannot go into Syria beyond what it has done, really. Well, it seems like there's no real solution with any of those those options, because since the United States has already stepped in, if Assad is taken out of power, he whoever usurps and whoever comes into power after him will be seen as not necessarily being legitimate because the Syrian people are going to just think that this next ruler is another puppet for either the United States, its allies, or or Russia. Uh, And on the other side of that, if we were to invade Syria, that opens up a whole new can uh, with us not just having to do with ISIS and the Syrian government, but also all of the, the splinter factions in the country. I think that kind of describes the key predicament. We can't go into Syria. We're not really, as a country, I think, in the business of regime change currently. Now, I think that the cruise missile strikes that Donald Trump ordered, um, as far as what America can do, that certainly is a way to use our resources in a way that doesn't you know, put American lives at risk, but also can hopefully guide um can steer Assad away from using chemical weapons again. I don't know how effective that will be. Um, It does at least seem like it might put the lives of some of our allies in jeopardy. If Israel is a country that is right next to Syria, so Israel, who is a very strong ally of the United States, uh, is seen as being in favor of these kinds of attacks or in the future if they're helping with these attacks, are we helping to start a Middle East war that could spiral out of control. I don't think so. I mean, I think that the Syrian conflict is relatively contained inside Syria. Obviously, you have the humanitarian crisis that extends far outside the borders, um, and you have the threat of uh, radical Islamic terrorists. There, I said it. Radical Islamic terrorists uh, flowing out of Syria. If you didn't say it, it wouldn't have existed. If you don't say it, you can't defeat it. You know? I mean, that's key. You gotta call it like it is. You gotta, you gotta call it like it um, is. So the, there is an exterior threat of radical Islamic terrorists leaving Syria and going into Europe, um, and eventually could theoretically come to America, and that would be how this threat could come home to roost. But ultimately, and Marco Rubio made this point this week, and I thought this was pretty interesting. He said, "How can Assad rule his country in the future after having done this?" 
How can Assad rule a country after he's killed um, hundreds of thousands of individuals, caused a humanitarian crisis? I don't think he's going to have much of a country to run. Well, I think that when – it was interesting. Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, made a comment, um, and this was at the tail end of last week. He said uh, the Syrian people will get to choose the future of their Syrian leaders, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. And it wasn't long after that that the chemical weapons attack occurred. And, and the theory that Rubio was pointing out was that if you're going to let Assad stay in power and you're going to uh, let him either be elected or not elected, well, he needs to change the electorate. Um, and by doing – he's going he, – he is doing that through a, a, you know, a methodical uh, campaign of killing across the country. But with that, uh, right now, I think another issue that faces the United States is exactly what our position is on the country – uh, Fareed Zakaria uh, from CNN brought up this point in a discussion he had uh, this past weekend on his show. And, and the issue was about us having uh, taken action in Syria, but also simultaneously wanting to keep a position of not allowing Syrian refugees into the country. Right? Both of those positions seem to be untenable uh, kind of simultaneously in action. It's difficult to have a policy that says your situation is so dire that we're going to send cruise missiles, but we're not going to let you come here after a a vetting process. Right. And I guess at that point, it has to be emphasized how limited our involvement is militarily in Syria. It's one thing to say, I guess we've launched cruise missiles in uh, into the country is another thing to understand what the scope of that was. We partially, partially destroyed an air base. It still had, you know, from the reports that were being shown, they still had uh, a functional uh, airport. They still had uh, airfields that they could launch subsequent attacks off of just a few hours after that. So I guess the question here is, I mean, if we stop at that, at, at that right there, then we're not really that much more involved. And it's hard for us to stand on a pedestal saying that we are, um, people that really value the moral high ground if we're not stepping in to help help these people. Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head there. I think there is um, obviously some tension there between this policy um, and us not allowing Syrian refugees to come into the country. Um, how, how do you think this ultimately plays out? How, how do you foresee the Syrian conflict coming to an end? I think what's going to be really key is how Russia reacts long term. So they already uh, vetoed uh, a UN Security Council resolution, which I mean, it is their right as a power five member. They have the ability to veto and just a singular veto from them would wreck uh, any kind of uh, resolution in in the Security Council. So they're going to veto anything that is uh, Security Council action against Syria, anything that has teeth. So long term. If they are in favor of regime change, the way that I would see it play out is that the United States may uh, ramp up the attacks that we are launching in Syria with the goal of replacing the leader. But what's going to happen is the reason Russia would be on board with that is that they have say in who the leader is. So at that point, it just seems like we're trading one Assad in for another. And I think you're exactly right. I think that the only way this conflict comes to an end is with um, the Russian government, with the Iranians, getting the ability to choose who controls Syria um, afterwards. It's interesting because um, 
Bashar al-Assad, his father ruled Syria before him, and they're both come from a sect of Shia Islam called the Alawites. And so I think that Iran obviously feels this cultural and religious connection to the Shia um, element of Syria, and that, coupled with Russia's need for a warm water port in Tartus, um, is going to be crucial. They're not going to give those things up. They're not going to see the Americans place a ruler in Syria. They're absolutely not. And even now, the Russians are worried because the Americans already have a bit of a bracket around them. Where the uh, We have Israel uh, as one of our chief allies in the Middle East, and now we are basically helping to run Iraq as well. So Russia sees their position in the Middle East weakened. Syria is the biggest stronghold for Russia in the Middle East, outside of the country, uh, outside of Russia, Syria has as the largest military base uh, for the Russians. So there's just no way that the Russians are going to give up control of Syria or allow the United States to install a leader or help install a leader who's going to be anti-Russia. And that's why our conversation before this is so important, because it, the, the Trump administration's relationship with the Russian government, and more importantly, the public perception in America of that relationship, is handicapping their ability to make a deal with the Russian government as to the future of Assad or the future of a Syrian government post-Assad. And I think we all know Donald Trump is itching to make a deal. We know that that man loves the art of the deal. It is really hard to practice the art of the deal when you have a massive world power in your way. It is. And I, I think he has continually learned the lesson that it's easier to fire someone on The Apprentice and it's easier to do something on The Apprentice than it is to get something done on the international stage. So with that all in mind, I think it might be time to switch gears to maybe a couple topics that are I mean, a little bit less serious. Now that we've solved world global politics, uh, world global politics and, we, and we've solved the Syrian crisis, I think you know it's important to talk about what's going on in America this Man, week. I tell you what, Robert, you look like you're a guy that could really use a Pepsi right now. You know, I'm just surprised Donald Trump hasn't taken a Pepsi to Vladimir Putin. Do you think Assad or, just needs a Pepsi? I mean, honestly, the why why isn't the American government dropping Pepsis on Assad? Well, what if I told you that Pepsi can't solve all the world's problems? What if I told you that people get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do marketing campaigns and they do absolutely terrible jobs? Really? How so? Well, I mean, Pepsi had an ad. Um, this week where it was, I believe it was created to look like a Black Lives Matter protest and you have one of the protesters giving a Pepsi to a police officer. Oh, it wasn't just any protester, it was Kendall Jenner. Oh, excuse me, it was a supermodel um, giving the Pepsi. And and this this really kind of um, obviously oversimplifies and obviously shows... Kind of just a, a lack of appreciation for the complex um, racial difficulties and problems that that movement encapsulated. And I guess to me, maybe this is why people are watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians, because there are so many problems being solved on that show. I mean, I think I need to look back at that show and rewatch the seasons, but I mean, they've probably given out hundreds of Pepsis across the world. Yeah. You know, one of our professors, I think maybe we might remember that we had in law school, Larry Thompson used to be general counsel for, uh, for Pepsi. How do you think he would react 
um, to the, to this kind of, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I think he would, uh, it would certainly bring a chuckle to him and he would probably be remiss that they had spent so much money on an ad campaign that cost them so much. Do you think social media made it a bigger deal than it was? Well, you know, that's something that I've seen a lot this week and we couldn't talk about anything this week without mentioning, um, the United Airlines social media fiasco. Just when you thought that you could fly the friendly skies. I mean, really, this week has been a clinical course in what not to do and what not to say. United Airlines just, it, they failed miserably on several levels. There, there comes a time when you got to realize, you have to assess a situation and say, you know what, we just need to fix this no matter what the cost. There are times when it doesn't make a lot of sense to have police called in to drag a peaceful doctor off of a plane to bloody him up, and then especially to have that get filmed and, and put out, um, and then to not really have the right words to react to that till the third try. I mean, it took them several tries to get it right. You know, I I am... I don't want. I want to strike the right tone here because I am a little sympathetic to the airline in the sense that um, they had they had already overbooked the flight. Well, so I have to disagree with you a little bit on that one, though. So evidence is coming out as if this is some massive investigation yeah. that, that people are are doing on Instagram. Uh, so apparently, from from what I'm hearing, the flight was not indeed overbooked. Oh, just that the airline found out that they had a flight the next day that some of their employees had to be on or, or else they could not fly. Um, and okay. so uh, they decided that they were going to bring these employees on. Uh, so CNN actually had uh, some of the passengers on uh, from the flight on and then interviewed them. And you guys should check out their entire interview because it's, it's pretty incredible. But uh, I know a part of it, uh, they talked about how one of the big reasons they didn't want to get off was because it was for other employees Oh, okay. um, not, not for other, not for other passengers. So, with kind of with all of that uh, being said, the more general viewpoint of that is, I think it's really important for companies to treat their customers right. Well, obviously, and I think it's important too. Once once they've made that mistake, you know, once they've called in the police and hauled off a doctor from his seat, bloodying his face, to know that you cannot do anything as a company without it being captured on social media and replayed thousands of times, sometimes hundreds of thousands of times. And in fact, ultimately, this decision by probably a low-level United Gate staffer cost sure. the company, what, hundreds of millions of dollars? Yeah, some reports are showing over a billion dollars in market value. Not only market value, but the stock has lost value. Right, the and stock, public perception it, of it, you as a company. And while I think that will fade... Um, it would have been a lot cheaper for them to correct this more quickly. I definitely think the CEO could have uh, attacked this in a different way. He, you know, just last month, PR Weekly magazine named him Communicator of the Year. Well, they're going to want their award <laughs> I back. Think they, I think they are hoping that there's 30-day return policy on that on that award. Uh, but with all that being said, I think they just increased the, the amount of money they were offering. Things probably would have looked. A little bit better, and I can definitely see that that doctor is going to be uh, a, a rich man. I mean, he, if, he's probably going to sue the airline, and by probably, I mean <laughs> the papers are probably already filed. <laughs> he should, he should. And he is also hopefully going to be a lifetime gold, platinum, medallion, double miles winner. He will <laughs> not have to ask for peanuts. I, I, hope, I hope the man can keep, 
can keep the can when he gets a drink every time for the rest of his life. And I want to give uh, just a gratuitous shout out here for a company that really does know how to manage uh, social media in a way that United could only uh, dream of is Wendy's. 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 If people haven't already heard about this, uh, Wendy's has a really, really great, very vibrant uh, Twitter feed, a uh, huge Twitter following. And one of their Twitter followers asked them what it would take to get a year-long supply of chicken nuggets. Uh, and, and chicken nuggets are incredible from Wendy's. Uh, and Wendy's actually responded to that saying that they would, that he would need 18 million retweets. And that campaign is now underway. People are retweeting him. So I think you should go – I can't remember what his, his Twitter handle is. I can't. Uh, you could probably find it if you, if you, you can, just you can, search You it. can definitely find um, it. Any good listener of Pod Civility can, I'm sure, find um, this young – uh, man's Twitter campaign for free chicken nuggets. Um, and given that this is about being civil and try to strike a, a moderate tone, I'll say this in favor of United Airlines. United also tweeted at this young man saying that if he does indeed get his 18 million retweets, they will fly him for free to any city where there's a Wendy's and United has service to, which, to get him his chicken nuggets. That's, that's kind of cool. Which is basically every city in America. Yes. Um, and I think that they did say they were not going to drag him off the airplane. I, I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I did see a post this week where it said um, it was a tweet at United and it said, at United, my ex-boyfriend's flying on this flight in this seat. <laughs> just just do your thing, guys. Right. So hopefully. So I've got a few tweets to send out to United then. <laughs> <laughs> the only redeeming part about this week for both United and Pepsi was that their uh, their inability to do things right was outdone by Sean Spicer. Yes, Sean Spicer, love him or hate him, definitely is a man with a lot of words. He broke the golden rule. You just don't talk about the Holocaust. You don't talk about the Holocaust mm. and you don't make comparisons to Hitler. There, you cannot compare things to them. They're singular. You just, you just should not, you, in, you're, unless you are at the Holocaust Museum and you're talking about a lot of the things that happened and, and how awful it was and how terrible it was, don't bring up the Holocaust, especially at a press briefing that has nothing to do whatsoever with the Holocaust. And, and this is one of those instances where you just need to say less and you'll say more. Um, he tried to use too many words, and he fell victim to his own his own words. And you know, General McMaster later on actually clarified, or at least tried to clarify, what Sean Spicer meant to say. And I think uh, General McMaster did a good job in saying that Hitler did not use uh, chemical weapons in any battlefield theater of of uh, World War Two. It's a very more very much specific instance of what he didn't do. And I think that's what apparently Sean Spicer meant to do, but was unable to do so when he talked about quote unquote Holocaust centers. When you refer to concentration camps as Holocaust centers, and then the Holocaust Museum subtweets you with a video of um, concentration camps, you know that you have made bad mistakes. That was that was definitely savage on on their part, but uh, but but, but duly needed. Absolutely, absolutely, duly duly. Needed. And to his credit. To Sean Spicer's credit, he came out and did apologize with no reservation. He let everyone know he made a mistake, shouldn't have used those words, should not have made those comparisons. He did. Yeah, and he hoped for forgiveness from from everyone. So, And, and I want to – I mean, I, and I don't think any reasonable person should think that – what I think happened here is Sean Spicer misspoke. 
he got caught trying to defend something he couldn't defend, and he got even further buried by it. Um, and one of the lessons there is that the mea culpa should have come much earlier on. It, people are more forgiving if you just say you made a mistake in the beginning. Unless, of course, you are, in this instance, a hardline Democrat. Right? So Nancy Pelosi came out, for instance, saying that Sean Spicer should be fired. Seems like that, that in itself is also a bit of an overreaction. You know, I think that Sean Spicer is doing a lot of the Democrats' work for them. I think – yeah, have, fair point. I think Nancy Pelosi asking for his firing would would only be to the Republicans' aid, um, and so. I, but I think obviously, you know, I'm not. I, I don't think anyone should subscribe to the belief that Sean Spicer is a Holocaust denier or or anything of that matter. I think he just simply misspoke. And what's interesting is that you've seen multiple instances where these singular, um, albeit very bad moments for either United Pepsi or Sean Spicer, um, they just become magnified in our current culture. They do. I think we have a we have a very reactionary culture. It seems like every time a statement is said, and especially when it's said by uh, political figures, people in the limelight who are having to speak all the time, every day, and monitor every single one of their words. A couple of examples that come to mind, uh, for instance, were Hillary Clinton when she talked about the basket of deplorables, right? And then uh, you have Mitt Romney uh, talk about kind of the other half, the people that would never vote for him. And you can you, know, you can read in whatever you'd like about that. I think both of them would probably tell you that they should have uh, rephrased the way that they said that. But at the end of the day, People are going to say a lot of things that they don't necessarily mean 100%. They just came out incorrectly. And it's like we live in this vine culture where it just automatically repeats every six seconds, you know, until you stop it and turn it off. You know, I think we're too quick to judge uh, people's statements in a way that affirms our own viewpoint of them than give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, it's much easier to make a meme that way, though. Exactly. We, we live in a meme culture. Um, we don't live in a, a culture that's willing to uh, forgive and forget or willing to uh, move on from an individual. Which is not to say that pod civility does not wholeheartedly embrace meme culture. We do wholeheartedly embrace. Please, please keep making we, memes. We need to make that clear. We don't want to change civilization and erase the meme. We want the meme to be greater. It's 2017. It's it's the year of the meme. It's Certainly, every year is the year of the meme. Yes, I think that is probably what I meant to say. And I think I misspoke. Every year is the year of the meme. So if you've enjoyed this podcast at all, even just maybe 10 seconds, we would love it if you would go give us a review on iTunes. You can say, they tried to destroy meme culture but failed. Or you could say, that was a great way of breaking down the Syrian civil war. These guys should get paid to do this. You could say whatever you want. Those are all options. Maybe don't bring up the Holocaust. Don't bring up the Holocaust. We don't talk about it. Sean Spicer shouldn't talk about it. You shouldn't write reviews about it. Don't bring it up. So I think that really ends the the first podcast that we have had, the first episode of Pod Civility. I think we made it, uh, made it through there. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it's done. It's done. It's there. It's out there. Uh, we uh, hope you enjoyed it. We hope you maybe learned just a little bit. I think that was the goal from, from the beginning. Absolutely. Uh, and also, I think we really just like to hear ourselves talk. So, maybe a little yeah. bit. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> Actually, I don't think I'm ever really going to listen to my own podcast. I think it's kind of weird to hear. <laughs> but. Hey, we look forward to seeing you next week on Pod Civility. Have a good one.